The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Beverly Dillich. She has been a fixture on Vancouver's cultural scene from her years as a cantorial soloist and entertainment coordinator at the Pacific National Exhibition to her personal and business partnership with the late Ray Carroll of the Platters to her current ownership of the Silver Lining Management Talent Company. So now she's an author, and her new book is called Come Fly With Me, Michael Bubbles Bobbles. I have to ask Beverly if I'm pronouncing this right. Rise to Stardom, a memoir. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Beverly. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you for having me on. And his name is Bublé. 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 So French, yes. Okay, great. <laughs> yes. Well, I, obviously you've had a long-term relationship with him. You discovered him, I guess, when he was 18 years old. Um, and apparently the story is just something that is very obviously special to you, and he's a special person. So can we start out, who is Michael Bublé? Michael Bublé. Bublé. I keep saying Bublé. Bublé. <laughs> okay. Just think of Boo. and then Boo and Blay. <laughs> okay, I've got it. Bublé. Okay. Bublé. Well, who, who is he to me, or who is he as a recording artist? Well, let's artist. talk about as a recording artist first for our listeners, and then obviously who is he to you, and we'll be talking about the memoir. Thank you. Well, yeah. he is a world-renowned now, and he's, um, you know, he's known all over the world, and he's touring right now. Uh, he just finished a tour through Canada, and now he's in the United States. As and a, what, is, what, is he do, what's his, what is he doing right now in terms of his performance? Uh, he is in, I can't remember which city he's in now. He just finished in Cincinnati, and um, he's in uh, Memphis coming up. And uh, then he goes on to, uh, I think, I believe it's London, England. And okay, then he so finishes in Mexico this time. Yep. And, and what's his show? What's he doing? What's the, what's the show? Well, the show is um, all of his uh, tunes that are, uh, Michael sings the tunes from way back when. And that was really the thing for him. He was an 18-year-old who loved the music that his grandfather listened to. And he grew up with that, and it was just nothing else but that particular genre that he wanted to sing. And that was kind of like a roadblock. Well, it was a roadblock for us because, you know, there was Sinatra before and all the other greats, and then there was Harry Connick Jr. singing that wonderful music. And so it was really difficult for us to put our foot in the, in the door at that particular time and because so, of that music. That music. Okay, so enter you. I mean, this was uh, – how old is he now? Because this was quite a while ago. This was um – he was 18 when you were yes, first introduced yes, to him? Yes, he's going to be 39, actually, in September. So you have a long history together. Yes, we do. And I met him when he, uh, 
I met him when I organized a particular talent contest at a club, and uh, he entered the talent contest, and I had overlooked the fact that he was underage, and he won. Everybody just loved him. His uh, his his uh, actions on stage and his voice and his connection with the audience, to this day, that's but who he is. And but so you I as a talent him. agent, and I'm curious because this is really important. I mean, uh, and and actually today everybody's looking for a talent. You know, somebody they want to be discovered. I mean, it's very whether it's music or art or film. And so, I mean, you're an agent. You saw Michael. There was something in him. What was it? How is a ta- how could how is a talent agent? Are you able to kind of find the star in somebody? Well, actually, uh, that's that, that's part of the story that was so fascinating, Catherine, is the fact that I wasn't an agent at the time. I was working with Ray Carroll, who was with the second generation of the Platters, and we were organizing these talent contests together. So when I met Michael, I wasn't even an agent, but I saw in him something so special. And then one of the programs I had at our annual fair, our annual Pacific uh, National Exhibition, was a talent contest for ages 13 to 21. And after I saw him at this contest and had to disqualify him, I asked him to come and um, enter this contest at our exhibition, and he did, and he won. And then a part of the winnings from that particular contest was a trip to Memphis, Tennessee, to visit Elvis's homeland and everything. It was just wonderful, and to participate in the, in the International Youth Talent Search. And he didn't win, but coming home on the airplane, he asked me to be his manager, and I had never been a manager before. And so why do you think he asked you to be a manager? If you'd never been a manager before, there must, obviously, you two had some kind of a chemistry. So he, yes, we did. And he, well, he said to me, I said, well, Michael, what do you need a manager for? And he said, well, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I, I love it. And, and because he was so good, of course, I, I didn't deny that. And, and he said, I, because I noticed, like, at the P&E and everything, you're very professional. People take you seriously and you don't, you don't, you don't act like a mother. <laughs> so those were three good reasons. And did you say yes on the spot, or did you have to no, think I about didn't. it? No, I didn't. We came home to Vancouver, and uh, because he had won the contest at the P&E, people had called into the radio station and asked if they could uh, book him for, for you know some special events. They loved his voice, a few weddings, etc. And he would always ask me to go with him, and I did, and that's how we started out. And so for that, that year, uh, with the little events and everything that he per- performed at, uh, we decided to make a um, an independent CD, and we did, and then and that was a year later. And then the night of the CD release, it was so successful. There was like 500 people there, uh, just through word of mouth. He said, "Now will you be my manager?" And I said, "Okay, let's go for it." And you did. So were you? We were, I mean, were you afraid, or were you? What, what do you risk when you when someone asks to be your manager, for instance, in that kind of a situation? I mean, there has to be obviously monetary risks for you, professional risks, what are they? Well, yes, at the time when I agreed to that, I was still working at the P&E coordinating community entertainment. So that was like a, a thing that I could count on, and I did that for 11 seasons. So during that time, which would be for another six years, I had that to count on while I booked him for various uh, events and um, 
made his made a second CD at a club he performed at, and then got him onto a musical review, which he didn't think he could do, but I, I knew he could, and he did, and everybody loved that. And then eventually one thing led to another. Beverly, I have to, what do you do to encourage, you're the management, you've agreed to be the manager, I mean, this is your baby, so to speak, um, and I assume there are times when he felt like he couldn't do something or he was afraid to do it or, you know, all of those kinds of things. So what do you do? How do you handle that? Particularly, well, absolutely. You know, it's like, well, I, I, not to compare it to your child, but you know what it's like with your child. You see certain qualities in them and you say to them, yes, I know you can. But like the musical review, I, uh, somebody had mentioned to me that Michael Bate would make a, a, a perfect um, Elvis uh, in this movie, in this uh, stage play. And when I, and I saw what the script was like and the music was like from his era, I said to him, Michael, I know you can do this. He said, Bev, I can't even dance. I said, they will teach you. I know you can do this. And I knew he could. And I called and called and called. This is all in my book. I called and called and called the, uh, the director and uh, the uh, producer of that uh, play until they finally said, okay, let's see if he can do it. And he did it. And he was totally successful. So I think it's because I knew. I, I just saw from a distance his talent, and I knew that he could do all of these things. I knew he could. You knew he could when he didn't know he could, it sounds exactly, like. Exactly, yes. And, and, and he was very insecure at times. You know, he used to say to me, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And um, I used to say, Michael, just keep doing what you're doing. And it's like connecting the dots. One of these days, somebody's going to find us that really believes, and they're going to be able to take you over the top. Well, would you say today for anyone who's going into the entertainment business, the music business, um, that they need to... How do they connect, given your experience with Michael, and you've had a lot, what, what do you look for in a manager? What does a manager look for uh, in, in, in terms of a, of a talent? I guess maybe well, I would ask first, the other way around, though. What would you, you know, if you're looking for a manager, what would you suggest? Well, first of all, Catherine, a manager is someone who manages your career. So, in essence, you should have a career before a manager will even look at you because, as you can appreciate, there's nothing for them to do if you don't have, you know, a good CD or you haven't been out there for a while. But, first of all, it, it's very helpful. But so to how does that work? That's sort of like you can't get a job unless you've already had a job, but you can't get a, you know, it's one of those catch-22s. Yes, it's tough. And things are different now in the entertainment industry from when Michael and I were together. As you know, artists can do so much more on their own now, but when it comes to push comes to shove, Everybody needs some help. So if you can have someone who believes in you, like I believed in Michael, someone in the entertainment industry that you know has a hook in what's going on, and also an agency that you can sign up with that says, yeah, we can get you some work, and that all leads to experience. And then comes the CD. It's, like, it's a calling card. You have to have a CD with at least demonstration um, of your voice on it that you can hand to somebody and say, what do you think? Or, in Michael's case, uh, a produced CD by David Foster, which took him over the top. Well, I understand, though, his first CD, he said he he hated it. He didn't like it. (laughs) That was his independent one. Yes, he did. And no artist ever does, I came to find out. And he proceeded to tell me that just before his CD release party that night. He said, oh, I don't know. He said, I hate this CD. I wish I never made it. I don't sound like this. 
Well, I think that's typical. I, you know, it is. Yeah, it's it is. very typical. Yeah, it's sort of like movie stars when they do a film. Some of them will say, I've never even seen my own films. I can't watch them, even the ones who have reached the top. I know. I know. Yeah, they won't too, even watch their first one for sure. Yeah, it's too painful. Yes. But, okay, so... So you have to have some kind of some kind of a career, something that the manager can take a look at and say, okay, I think we can work with this and, and then take it higher, um, which obviously you did. What, what are some of the things when you you decide to you, you get a manager, you're in a situation like you and Michael, but you do have to navigate the entertainment industry, and it's tenuous at best. So how do you do that? How do you start out? Well, uh, when you start out, of course, it's best to um, have some vocal coaching for sure, if not vocal lessons. Uh, even if you're a natural talent, uh, Michael himself did take some vocal coaching uh, when he was younger. And, and you know, this gives you um, the opportunity to enhance your voice. It isn't like, you know, you're not talented and you don't need any help. Everybody could use a little help, just like going to school. And, and once you have uh, your voice in, in order... You know, Catherine, there's a lot of people out there that think they're talented, but nothing ever happens. And so you have to find out if you are talented. It isn't just enough to have vocal lessons or vocal coaching. You have to go to some agents and ask them what you think. You know, when people used to call me for some vocal coaching and before I even met them, I would say to them on the phone, well, do you have a good voice? And, and they would say either, uh, well, 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 uh, well, I think so. People tell me I do. Or they would say to me, yes, I do, and I want you to hear it. So you have to start out with some training and work from there. And then if you are um, ready to sing, you should sing wherever you can, anywhere you can, so people can see you. And if you do have some talent or good talent, Somebody out there will recommend you to someone, and that will start leading to other things. And that's so. What in other words, you us. have to practice your craft all the time. Is that you it? Do. As it's much just as like you... anything else. Yeah. It's just because you're talented, a natural talent, of course. But what does natural mean? You still have to work at it, right? Just like a natural beauty watches their body and what they put into it, and and what they do with their skin. I mean, it's no different. You can't be a professional football player and just play at the game or play exactly. once, <laughs> once a week. You have to constantly be doing it, or as you said, if Even you play though you're the a piano, great runner and a great passer, you have to, well, look at the rehearsals people have and the practices they have. The professionals, you have to work at your, uh, you have to hone your skill. Beverly, what about this? Okay, so you hone your skill, you are talented. What do you think, you know, and some people are really talented and do hone their skills, play all the time, whatever they do, but at the same time, there's another piece to that. They don't seem to be able, they aren't the ones who can make it to stardom. I'm thinking about, I don't know if you saw the movie Inside Lewin Davis. Oh, no, I didn't, but I heard about that, and I'd love to see that movie. Yeah, because it's related to what you're talking about, why, and I, I think the, the, you know, this person in the film was very, very talented, but he never could quite make it. And then at the end, they sort of compared him to Bob Dylan, who had a, he was very similar in talent to him, to, to him, and Bob Dylan made it. So what, you know what I mean? Equal yes. talent, but there's something else, another piece there. So as a, as a, a as a manager, um, and someone who owns a talent agency, what's that other, what is the other side? What's the other piece? Well, well, you know, Catherine, a lot of it has to do with fate, <laughs> luck, being at the right time, uh, place at the right time. You know, uh, in all of our struggle, Michael used to always feel that he was never at the right place at the right time. But, you know, he really was because one thing led him to another. And I would say that, you know, even like he could have made 
a great living at this, but he wanted the brass ring. And you know, there's a lot of talented people out there who they could have a great career just traveling the world, working with agencies who book them for various events and functions all over the world. But some people, like Michael, wanted the brass ring, and we were just fortunate enough to meet the people, like uh, Brian Mulrooney, who, who asked him to sing at his daughter's wedding, and David Foster happened to be there. And that didn't even happen right away. It took a whole year before anything even went that far. And I would say it's persistence, believing in yourself, having somebody that believes in you, and taking every opportunity that comes by. And then a certain amount is left to fate. Yep. So there are a lot of pieces to that puzzle. There are uh, lots of pieces, yes. And Beverly, what? About, how about Michael? Now you've known him for a long time. How has he? How has he changed as he's as he has become a star? Because that's a whole other evolution, I would imagine, in terms of not just his talent, but his personality, his lifestyle, his family relationships. Can you kind of give us a, an overview of that? Yes. Well, I think that the most important thing you can have, of course, is your family values. And he had a great foundation. He has a great family. And uh, it, when he wanted to do this, his family, this is what I loved about being with him, was his family was so supportive. You know how we all say to our kids, you need to get a real job. Yeah. <laughs> We've all done that, okay? Not just, but his family never said that. His grandfather loved the fact that he loved, um, he loved this music, and his grandfather was a plumber, and he used to trade uh, giving people um, uh, free plumbing who might be able to have Michael on their stage to perform. He did stuff like this. So um, if, you, if you go back and think about uh, those pieces that need to fit, it, you have to have that opportunity in the first place, and he had all of that behind his family, and that is huge. And the next thing is your attitude. You have to have a great attitude to be great, and Michael always had a great attitude. He reaches out to his audience. One one woman said to me one day when she was interviewing me, she said, you know what, I saw Michael in a concert, and... and it made I made I felt like I was the only one there, and this is the way he makes the audience feel. So your attitude relating to the audience, these are all pieces that are super important, and definitely your attitude. Beverly, how do you keep away from all the drugs and alcohol and addiction and all those kinds of things? Because that's that's right out there in the entertainment that's huge. business. And there's people out there, Catherine, that have the most wonderful families, and they still do. They still get into trouble. Look at all the movie stars out there. But I still say it has to do with your family values and where you are at that time when you think about doing it for the first time and you think maybe I should call my family, I should call you know somebody in my family, talk, see how things are going. And, and I do believe that that is still um, the main, it, it is your family, family values and the foundation that you grew up with. What about those who don't have their support of their family, but they are talented and they are determined and they meet somebody like you and somebody who believes in them. Are they, I mean, they also, I mean, there are people out there, there are stars out there who have accomplished it in that way too as well, right? That's right. They've come from nothing. And those are people that I truly believe had the burning desire inside them and said, I'm going to do this. And, you know, sometimes if you don't have uh, the support of your parents or you don't have that nucleus, the, the fire inside of you will take you a little bit further because you truly, truly believe in yourself. And that's very important to believe in yourself. 
I guess that's the key. You have to believe. Well, if you don't believe in yourself, then you're not going to be able to make it. I mean, that's wouldn't that be the core piece of the whole thing? You have that's to really core, believe. And Michael always was like that. He yep. wanted the brass ring from the very beginning, and and he used to just I could just see him fretting, 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 and uh, this wasn't good enough, and that wasn't enough, and when is this going to happen, and when is that going to happen? And he lived and breathed it, and now he is living it. And you ask how he's different now. He's just more mature and better. He still has that same uh, wonderful connection with the audience, and he still has a wonderful attitude toward not only the audience but his musicians and everybody around him. He's extremely appreciative and extremely grateful, and I think that that makes for a superstar. Being yeah, grateful. That does, I agree with you. What about writing a memoir, though? I mean, that gets to be, you know, when I in, what, interview people who have written memoirs, sometimes they start out writing their story or someone else's story kind of as a novel because they don't want it, they're afraid they're going to offend people. And then as they get into it, they change it into a memoir, and it is kind of the reality of what happened. So was it difficult writing the memoir? I mean, did you feel like you would expose yourself or expose Michael in ways that perhaps you shouldn't because... Uh, and or and or people in the industry or business or family. Well, Catherine, I had always wanted to write the memoir. The memoir is really about me, and and this was the glowing, uh, what you say, the icing on the cake. Uh, when I met Michael, I had always wanted to write a memoir because I felt, and I'm sure everybody feels this about their life, <laughs> that it was very unusual. And one event in my life always would segue into another event. And so then when I met Michael, um, and everybody knew I always wanted to write a book about my life, his family would always say, don't forget to put this in your book, don't forget to put that in your book. So uh, when I was ready to write the book, which was uh, quite, a, quite a time later, I had to, you know, after our time together, I, I got back home and I got back into my life with my, you know, my family and my friends and all of that. So when I started to write the book, I wrote it about my life because if you read a book about, book about Michael Bublé, about a manager he was with, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, well, who is this woman? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, so where did she come from? I had, yep. Yeah, I would have that in there. And then I entitled it that because it really was the icing on the cake for my life. A girl from Butte, Montana, who had a very restricted home life, discovered someone that she believed in, rode with him, and he's now a superstar. And that's yep. it in essence. And you've had an interesting life. He's divorced, remarried, converted to Judaism, which is interesting, being a Jewish person myself, born into it, raised two children, and survived breast cancer. Yes, I had a very interesting life and very eventful life, I must say, and it still is going on. I think it's just one of those things. I'm always ready to hop on a bandwagon. (laughs) I was going to ask you, why did you convert to Judaism? Very interesting. Yes, um, my the, the the fellow I married lived next door to me when uh, we were in Missoula, where the university is, and uh, we got to be really good friends. And to make a long story short, he moved back to Canada, where he was from. Only he was from Alberta, and he moved to British Columbia. We missed each other. We stayed in touch, and one day we got married. And he asked me if I would. And you know, I had read up a lot about Judaism, and I. I loved the camaraderie and the people, and I loved what Judaism stood for, and I converted it, and I loved it. It was my life. Yes, and then because I had sung my whole life, um, that's why I had an ear, and I knew Michael was talented because I had that ear. And so um, the rabbi asked me to do cantorial uh, work, and I was, uh, did a lot of solo work in the synagogue for like 10 years. I loved it. 
Well, you have a great voice, and uh, and um, yes, and, and being a cantor, that's that's exciting. I mean, that's uh, um, I always enjoy that. As, that's the best part of the service, to be honest. Well, remember now, to- that was reform. <laughs> the Orthodox and the uh, conservative would not have allowed uh, allowed a female to do cantorial work. But I was with the reform movement, and that's why you know I, I was allowed to do it. And I, yes, like I said, I really loved it. And now, you, and you survived breast cancer. So when were you diagnosed with breast cancer? Nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. So it's been a long time. That's a long great. time. Yeah. Knock on wood. Yeah. Very very happy about that. Yes. Where do you find all your energy? I mean, you're somebody who's done so many different kinds of things besides being Michael's manager, amongst others. But um, I mean, you're. I guess that's the question. Where do you get all that energy? Where do you get, well, how do you keep going? What what compels you to keep moving and producing and doing and succeeding? Well, for one thing, um, I think that uh, it's something, honestly, I believe it's an innate thing that you are born with some kind, some of these qualities. And I do believe that I was born with those. And I'm definitely a survivor. My, my father died when I was 17 and my mom died when I was 24. And I think that that in itself uh, gives you strength, and, and, and luckily, my sister and my brother and I all survived very well. Nobody went the other way because we lost our parents. And I think that that makes you strong, and one challenge leads to another. And when you think, when you've accomplished one thing and you think you want to try something else, you say, well, I've done that before. I, I can try that. And, and you do it. Yeah, well, you do it. I don't know that everybody does. I mean, that's another strength, I think, that either... It gives you energy. Yeah, it gives, it gives you energy. energy. It builds on itself, kind of, you know, new experiences and new accomplishments. Some people just kind of sit there in their barker lounge and don't do anything, so I'm not so sure. The wisdom, you know, the wisdom is everything, yeah. Catherine. I, and I'm really thankful for my wisdom, and I feel very proud of what I know and, and, and what I do with it. Well, so what's next for you? Well, you know... Um, Besides uh, traveling and, and having these wonderful interviews, which I'm just loving, uh, I, I'm, I believe I'm going to be doing some um, motivational speaking. I've been asked by uh, a couple of organizations to speak on my life and what I've done, and, uh, and I think I would love to do that. Yeah, well, that comes through. I mean, and not just in your book, but just in interviewing you. I mean, your enthusiasm and that kind of ability to move forward. So as a motivational speaker, you would be perfect. I, I can... <laughs> Going around the country, motivating other young people too. I well, think that's what's you. important. Thank yeah. You. Well, and particularly in this industry, and I'm kind of going full circle because we don't, we only have a few minutes left. But you know, it just seems that there are so many young, talented kids these days, and they yes. do have a lot of opportunities because of the internet and connections. Oh, yeah. So, uh, but really don't know what direction to take. You know, and so they get lost, they get stuck, and. Um, so I think it's um, kind of it, it, it behooves you to get out there and to well, yes, I do have a consultant them. service on my uh, silver lining management, and I do have people, believe it or not, who actually Skype me, who don't live close by and can't meet with me, and and we we I have worked with uh, several. Uh, uh, artists in that manner where, you know, they will show me what they wear on stage, how they act when they're on stage. They've actually performed with someone playing a piano so I can evaluate what they do. We've talked about their genre, and they've told me about the different agencies that are out there, and I told them which ones I thought after I went online and researched it, uh, which one they should work with. And, yeah, it's a very successful way to do business with social media. 
Now, your website, let's talk about your website and how people can, I mean, people are Skyping you, but how people can get, listeners can get in touch with you. And um, I assume silverliningmanagement.com. And incidentally, Michael gave me uh, the incentive to name that because he told me that I used to always have such a positive attitude that everything had to have a silver lining. And so that's why I named my company Silver Lining Management. Yeah, that's a great name. It's perfect for, yeah, it's great for a management company. Um, Okay, well then, come fly with me. Um, Recommend the book highly. Michael Buble's Rise to Stardom. Yes, and they can buy it on Amazon. The delivery is great. Terrific. Thanks so much being, you know, for being on the show this morning, Beverly. It was oh, great it was talking to you. It's a pleasure meeting you, Catherine. Great. We are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Guy Gilchrist, and you probably know who he is because he is a cartoonist, and he is the cartoonist for Nancy and Sluggo. Boy, I, I, it was so exciting to talk to you. This, it will be exciting to talk to you. We have been talking a little bit before the show, Guy, but, um, you know, I, I was one of those who read Nancy and Sluggo, and I'm not going to tell you how many years ago, but uh, <laughs> it it is definitely an iconic cartoon. And I guess one of the things, you know, why I wanted to interview this morning, you this morning, is because, and I think, you know, you talk about this, nostalgia is big in America, right? We like to go back to our roots, and um, apparently even 
the marketing industry. Many brands are using nostalgia in their marketing campaigns. So I guess, Nancy and Sluggo, is that nostalgic? Does that bring us back to our roots, that, that, that cartoon? Or I think it does, Catherine. I think that... You know, nostalgia or, you know, the wanting for anything, uh, you know, from your childhood is all about our heart. You know, it's our security. It's a touchstone. It's no matter what's going on in the world, what I like to think is that you can turn it off for a few seconds when you see the strip, whether it's in your newspaper or it's on the websites, you see it. You know, it gives you a, it might give you a flash of home. It might give you uh, just a little respite from whatever your worries are that day. It's nice to be just a, a small part of people's day. You know, Nancy's been around for 81 years. I'm nostalgic about Nancy. Not just my 20 years on the job writing Nancy, but reading Nancy in the newspapers and in the comic books growing up. You know, I was one of those kids, too. And so, and so was I. Uh, I used to get up in the morning and read Nancy and Sluggo, always. It was in our daily you know, newspaper. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I'll tell you a little, little Nashville story. I live here in Nashville, and, um, you know, so does Brenda Lee. And the queen of Christmas, you know, rock around the Christmas tree. Uh, How you know, old Brenda is Brenda Lee, Lee was, now? You know, like 10 years old when she was on a tour bus, you know, traveling around. And when, when, I, when, when I met her, she told me, you know, guy, Nancy was the first thing I ever read. She said, because there were hardly any words, so I could understand it, you know. And I think that that's a lot of kids remember Nancy because there were so few words and there were funny pictures and you could understand it. Also, she's simple. She looks simple to draw. And Sluggo looks simple to draw. So as a child, you know, you always, would always pick out characters like Nancy or Sluggo or the Peanuts characters that seemed like they were easy to draw and you would draw them and that was part of your self-expression, you know, in your, in, in your uh, childhood too. Yeah, I think that's true. Kids look for stuff that they can relate to. It's not too complicated. Uh, I just said, how old is Brenda Lee now? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> she's uh, she's the same age as you, twenty nine. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, we'll <laughs> go from there. <laughs> same age uh, as my wife, twenty nine. Yeah, mm-hmm. twenty nine. That's exactly right. You've got I, that. I, you know what? I, you know, I'm uh, I'm a smart man. Yes. Uh, well, you know, not in everything, but at least that one, I don't fall in that hole. <laughs> okay, great. Well, then forget that question. Let's get back to Nancy. Now, you have been you have been drawing her for the past twenty years. What? But what initially, say twenty years ago, what attracted you to to the uh, Nancy and Sluggo series? Actually, Catherine, it was. It's funny you say it, it was the exact opposite. Uh, what it what happened was, uh, you know, I had worked for the Muppets earlier. And I had uh, I, I had a history in comics. Uh, I uh, I wrote and drew the Muppets comic strip for Jim Henson back in the in the early eighties, and uh, and then I did another comic strip. So I anyway, I was familiar with very familiar with comic strips. And when my agent David called me up and said, "Hey, you know, uh, United Features would like for you to try out for the Nancy strip. Are you interested?" I said, "No." 
And uh, the reason were, there were quite a few different reasons. You know, number one, I understood that it was going to, it's a lifetime commitment. You know, it's like a, having a radio show. You'll be careful what you wish for because, you know, you have a sick day, too bad. You know, you, you know, something happens, too bad. Life is in the way, too bad. It's something that you're going to be doing for the rest of your, rest of your life if you're fortunate. Very, very blessed and fortunate. So was that and, the main uh, reason, what guy, why you thought, I'm not sure I want to do this, oh, this I don't want to be committed? A, a whole bunch of reasons, yeah. Catherine. You know, number one, I grew up with it. You know, it was, you know, I looked at it as, you know, how am I even going to think about drawing and writing this thing? Even though I had worked for Disney, for Henson, for Warner Brothers, Nancy was scary. And uh, it was really scary. And, you know, and so I told my agent, no. And it wasn't like in my style or anything. I said no. And then what happened was I wound up pulling out a whole bunch of Ernie Bushmiller. He's the creator of Nancy. I pulled out a bunch of his artwork that I had around uh, and tried to draw Aunt Fritzy and tried to draw the characters, and I couldn't. And so it got me, you know, I, I was all riled up because I just couldn't draw them, and I had been able to draw anything else. So I kept on trying and trying and trying, and I didn't tell anybody. And a week or so later, that's all I did uh, for about a week or so. And then I called my agent and said, "Okay, you know, I've got some, I've got some strips, uh, and you can show me." And I didn't know. He said, "Well, I didn't think you were doing." It. I said, "Well, no, I, I'm, I'm going to try. I tried it. I couldn't draw them, so I tried. Anyway." Uh, but guy, why couldn't you draw them in the beginning? What was it about you know, Nancy that? Why couldn't you do it? The <clears throat> There are a lot of different styles of art, you know. You, you know, folks may not look at the comic strips and think that there are that 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 there are different styles of cartoons, or maybe you do. But if you, but imagine if you're in a uh, in an art museum, you know, and you see a Renoir and you see a Degas, and those are fairly similar, but they're kind of not. But then you go and look at Norman Rockwell. Yeah. There, there are many, many different styles of art, and it really wasn't my style. I was sort of a brush guy. I was a Disney kind of a guy. Uh, I inked it with a brush, and Ernie. Bushmiller drew with pens, and he was very meticulous, and he used a lot of rulers and compasses and things like that, things that were very foreign to me. And, uh, but I took it as a challenge after I found out I couldn't do it very easily. I took it as a challenge, well, this is going to be a tough one. And so without telling anyone, because certainly you know, I didn't want to fail in the spotlight, I just did it on my own. And the other reason, Catherine, art-wise, was one so thing. So you, you were like you know, a, a it, Renoir. We, uh, the guy, oh, I just yeah, wanna, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was, no, I was going to say, so you're kind of like your Renoir, and then you decide to paint like Salvador Dali, and you just <laughs> can train your head. Exactly. You know, you, you, know, you could be... You could be very uh, accomplished in in one area, but you know you take a fish out of water, you know, and that's kind of how I felt. And it really wasn't so much uh, that I was afraid to pick up the mantle, so to speak. Um, I loved the characters, and I've always felt as a writer. Uh, it would be a wonderful challenge. It's always a wonderful challenge to try to write like anybody, you know, and write for different characters. I've written for all these characters over the years, the different characters over the years, before I uh, uh, really, really centered my life around Nancy and Sluggo. And so that was going to be fun, you know, writing gags, jokes, you know, the way that Ernie used to. But the, the drawing was, was difficult. 
and um, you know, I, I guess you know, I, I guess it was one of these things that I, it was just meant to be because when I called my agent and said, "Okay, I've got some," he took them in, and they already had somebody that they were had under contract. Uh, in that week, they had found somebody, and he showed them my art, and they, whoever that guy was, I know I'm at, not at the top of his hit parade, I never knew who he was, uh, but he, uh, my agent came out of uh, their offices uh, with a contract for me, and that's been 20 years now. 20 years, well, let's go back even further, because as I understand it, you started out drawing cartoons when you were just in high school? I mean, how does that come about? I mean, you just kind of felt, felt you had a talent, or how, how did you realize, or when did you realize you had a talent for doing this? Well, you know, I think, that, I think that the true gift that comes from God, the first gift that comes, is that you have a desire. You know, you have a desire to be loved, you have a desire to be wanted, to be noticed. You know? And so we all have these gifts where we find this little magic, you know, that's in our heart that, you know, I drew a picture of Woody Woodpecker while watching him on TV, you know, on a piece of shirt cardboard. You hold it up to your mom's ear. You know, she says, oh, that's beautiful, honey. She gives you a kiss on the cheek. You know, you go, hey, wow, you know, I did something good. And, uh, you know, my mom was a single mom. Uh, We were poor uh, growing up. And she used to work in diners and in hotels, you know, and uh, at the front desk, uh, she'd be waitressing, whatever. And the newspaper was always there. And so that was my daycare. She would open up the newspaper every day and give me uh, placemats or something and pencils and say, here, draw that. Now, she wouldn't point to one particular cartoon. She'd point to all of the pages and say, here, draw that. And so whenever her shift was over, you know, that was it. And so all my life, I was drawing, and I was learning how to read, and I read the entire paper, and so uh, I was probably a pretty obnoxious kid, and by the time I was about 14, I was up in New York City, I, I originally come from Connecticut, and I was in New York City, and I was, the comic conventions had just begun, this was the early 1970s. And so I would go to these comic conventions and try to get jobs, and I got jobs. And so I started working, uh, you know, for Disney um, and uh, and for various companies uh, sort of growing up uh, and uh, eventually, you know, landed with the Weekly Reader and writing books and uh, comic books for Weekly Reader. And then I was discovered by uh, Jim Henson to do The Muppets. But you must have had a lot of motivation and a lot of drive and as you support from your mother. I mean, it's not just mommy saying, oh, those are great pictures, guy, but it, I mean, which is nice because moms do that. But uh, so in school, I mean, did you have recognition in art class? Because, I mean, going up to, you make it sound easy, but you really are ex- obviously extremely talented, extremely successful. So I'm always interested in how you were able to kind of make that leap from Drawing pictures, uh, drawing cartoons on the floor while your well, mother actually, was actually, <laughs> you know, my my mom uh, when she remarried, um, we didn't have a we it was not a very happy home. We there were a lot of children, and uh, uh, and uh, it was not a it was not a terrific situation. And uh, I wanted out. I was going to say you want to get out I of there when you went. Yeah. yeah, and I really wanted out, and I started. I worked for. 
uh, I would do work, any kind of work, you know, because I felt that the the more you know, the more money I could save up, uh, you know, the more freedom that I would have. And I realized also from a very very early age, college was never going to be something that I was ever going to think about. Even though I did well in school, it was just not anything that anyone in my family ever talked about. So it wasn't anything that I. I, I ever thought about what I thought about. The good thing about my stepfather, the, the, uh, there were a lot of bad things, but the good thing was he was an upholsterer and he made things with his hands. So I saw that somebody could go ahead and do something uh, and make a living with it. Uh, they didn't, uh, you know, it was something that was a craft, something that they could do. And so my, you know, there were my hands. Uh, I knew how to, I knew how to draw, and I didn't need a writer. I could write my own stuff. And uh, so I just went out and basically uh, financed myself by working in drugs, in a drugstore, in bars, and, uh, you know, uh, warehouses, any place I could get work. And I would save up money, you know, for train tickets to New York and then eventually for a car. And I went out looking for work. My... Uh, my, I had two Bibles. I had, you know, I had the Bible, and then I had Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and I followed those as my roadmap and got to where I was. You know, Catherine, we all know that uh, we know we know incredibly talented people that don't make it. And I don't think that I was ever the best writer, the best artist, or any of that. I mean, it's very kind what you say about me, but honestly, I think. The reason that I've had any kind of success over the years is because I've tried hard. That's all. I just and because you had hard. two you know, Bibles. Trying hard and not being afraid. Okay, so you blew it. What did you just learn? You know, instead of saying, oh, I blew it, I failed, I would go, okay, I blew it. Okay, I know not to do that one now. Go there. Now I'll go to this place. You know, and it's like Thomas Edison always said. Okay, you know, after nine hundred ninety-nine things that went wrong and the, the electric light didn't work yet, he said, "Okay, well, I found nine hundred ninety-nine things. You know, uh, I've got nine hundred ninety-nine uh, things down, and I'm getting closer and closer and closer to my success." That's how but I also, always felt. But also, Guy, I think you have to go back to, you said, you know, your mother remarried, second marriage, it was terrible, too many kids, and your stepfather wasn't that great. But yeah, even as yeah. a kid, you were able to, like, I think the fact that he was an upholsterer, he made money, you were able to, like, look at something that was good about him that you could emulate. I mean, I don't know if most kids do that. You know, it's like they would say, it's, this is a horrible situation, they want to get out, and they really yeah. take nothing from it. So mm-hmm. you're, it sounds like you're the kind of person who's always able to get something from whatever it is, even if it's not a great situation or even if you fail. So you are able to, you know, what's that, make lemon out of, lemonade out of lemons or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing. But, you know, and you also said that your second Bible, uh, that was uh, How to Get Rich. So that was my next rich, question. Yeah. How lucrative is being a cartoonist? Uh, it's, it can be. Uh, it can be very lucrative. It's like anything, you know. I mean, you've got uh, uh, you've got artists that have done extremely well in whatever form of art, whether it's music, dancing, what you know, um, painting, uh, uh, graphic arts, uh, computer arts, or or cartooning. Or you know, you can uh, you know be going hand to mouth, hand to mouth, hand to mouth. 
uh, I get a I, I got a letter I got a letter the other day from uh, you know people write to you that you don't get fan mail like you used to you know yes. through the regular mail even though we have our address up on our website and everything basically what you do is you get a lot of email and I got an email from somebody and they said do you, do you, you know did you make money doing this and it was uh, something that we had posted online uh, some cartoon and he says you know I can't make any money doing anything and instead of sort of being a little insulted and saying you know oh gee what was this guy deleting him you know <laughs> I wrote him back a note and I said well that's your problem he says you know I'm trying every day uh, he says, I draw stuff every day and I can't make a living I, and I said well that may be your problem what who knows that you're drawing this stuff you know, who's writing it, but mainly who knows that you're doing this stuff and how are you taking responsibility for going out there and marketing yourself? I said, the reason that you know who I am after all of these years, you know, yes, it's accumulated publicity, it's accumulated marketing, uh, but what I do is I write and draw three days a week and then I run a business, you know, in trying to make sure that artist communication. So I'm out there trying to communicate, making sure that the strips are out there, that they are getting seen. And I think that's always been a part of me. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy doing is going out and speaking a lot to people, especially this age group coming up, that they're so proficient in technology, but maybe not socially, and they may not know how to network and how to work themselves. They, may, they think that everything's a computer program. You know, I get these letters from people. They go, what program did you do that in? And I write, uh, number two pencil. But how do they develop these people skills? Because I think you've really hit on something. I think this generation, I was speaking to somebody yesterday, I mean, the millennials really don't know how sometimes to connect when it comes to marketing or uh, having to do with a job because they really are just, you know, computer savvy. That's what they do. So are you teaching them how to market by connecting with people or, or... because what I'm doing is when when I when well when whenever I do a uh, whenever I do a talk it it's it's always geared you know, specifically for the whatever age group and whatever group I'm doing and sometimes a very diverse group and a lot of it is is answering questions but I make sure that my talk itself is extremely low tech yeah we have a you know we we have a little thing that goes on before I go up there that shows all the different cartoons and different things that we've done over 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 my lifetime but then once I'm up there there's no big flash and and uh, you know fireworks and stuff like that it's it's a it's a big pad I draw pictures I tell stories and the reason I do it like that is I want folks to understand that thoughts are things that achievement comes from Effort, you know, it's not just blessings from the sky. Yes, we are blessed by God, but you know, and God loves us all. But we need to be proactive. You know, we can't sit on a sofa and expect just because we're a good painter or a good writer that someone's going to find our blog. You know, uh, we've got to get out there and not be afraid to fail. That's difficult, I think, for a lot of people, particularly maybe some of these younger people today, because they, 
not being afraid to fail. I mean, it, obviously, that's been part of your whole career. I mean, you seem to be able to, when things don't go right, you're able to just keep on going. And I think uh, most of us, or many of us, just get stumped. Sure. And that's the yeah, that's the difficult you know, part, Catherine. You know, you know, you're very successful at what you do, and how you know how that have you kept picking yourself up. You know, you just keep picking right. yourself up. And, you know, and hopefully, you know, hopefully you have a, you know, a, a good support network, you know, for, for yourself. And maybe you don't. You know, maybe your only support, you know, is your church or your best friend. Or it may be the Bible. Or it may be a motivational book or a, you know, or a pla- Maybe you don't have anybody, you know. Well, do you think you have to create your, uh, or you have to maybe create you your, do and you just you- need to reach out. Well, I think, Guy, you have to also, some people automatically have a support network, whether their family is very supportive. If they're not, then they're not. But I think one has to create their own support network. As you say, you have to get off of the couch and hang around with people who do support you. Put yourself in that kind of a position. If it hasn't come to you, you know, automatically, or you haven't been lucky enough to have that in your background. So, because I don't, if you don't do that, I think it's very difficult to be able to go it alone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the problems with the way that we interact, you know, uh, it's great that you can go on the computer, you can take, you, you can go to college on the computer, you know, you can live your entire life on the computer and right. never leave your house. A lot of people do, I get, unfortunately. Yeah, they do, uh, and more people are doing that. I think is sad is that there seems to be uh, the organizations that, you know, that, that I used to go to uh, you know, and try to meet with people who knew more than me and try to get into these mentoring circles and mastermind circles. You know, um, that's something now that we have to let the, uh, uh, the younger folks coming up know. You know, those still exist. You know, go find that stuff. If you want to be... Whatever it is you want to be, go find the organization of people that are incredibly successful at it and find out what are the minimum requirements for you to join. Wow, what a great starting point. You know, what a terrific starting point. Uh, I just met with a person, wonderful person, wrote an incredible book, uh, was in a situation now where they were afraid because uh, they were starting to get uh, requests for going to speak to small groups. I, they didn't know how to do it. And so I suggested, well, you know, why don't you go find the local speakers bureau and become a part? Well, you know, a week later, wow, doors open up, you know? Yeah. yeah. Now, that is a great advice and great advice for some of the young listeners that, who are listening to us right now. Uh, I only, we only have a couple minutes left. It's been, it's been, I've really enjoyed talking to you, with you, uh, Guy Gilchrist. You're Guy, very easy we, to talk to. You know, yeah. So are you? So you tell and, us. But you know, what do your website? You Give me diverse. You know, uh, uh, diverse uh, show. Folks coming in, calling in, and uh, you know the people that you interview. Anyway, it's been great. It's been great. But give us your website one more time too, because yeah, people. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's real easy, folks. You've been reading them all your life. Nancy and Sluggo. So it's nancyandsluggo.com. And believe it or not, the first brand new Nancy book, uh, Nancy comic book of uh, 144 cartoons of mine. It just came out. The first edition is just about sold out. But uh, and it's the only place you can find it. And they're all autographed. And it's all on the uh, the nancyandsluggo.com website. Um, and also, if you're interested, if you if you're uh, 
if, if uh, you can go see where I'm talking, um, the different groups that I'm speaking with, and hopefully uh, I can get to meet you somewhere out on the trail. Fantastic. Guy Gilchrist, thanks so much for being on the show this Catherine, morning. Thank you yeah. so much. Great talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 